Welcome to the Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we have Rob Goliometti in the studio. Rob's a daylight enthusiast, a lighting enthusiast. He's got a world of experience as a lighting designer, a researcher, and honestly, he's super passionate about simulation. Rob, welcome to the podcast. How are things going? Real good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, it seems to be a common trend. People are driving down from Boulder to Denver to be on this podcast. And I've got to admit, Boulder sounds pretty nice this time of year. I feel like I need to get back up there, go for a mountain bike ride, hike Chautauqua for sunrise, do something fun. Absolutely. It's a great place, but we're in Colorado and it's hard to complain because it's summertime. There is a forest fire. I don't know. Uh, have you seen any of that smoke up there recently? No, I haven't seen the smoke, but you hear the uh, the, the water bombers flying overhead because they're all operating out of Jeffco, which is nearby. Wow, that's crazy. I mean, cruise along, suck the water up, and off they go. Well, we could talk more about water bombers, but I think we should talk about lighting. Sure. Before we dive in and talk a little bit more about what daylighting is and really the essence of how it's probably our best light source that we have available to us today and how it gets implemented. Just tell me, who's Rob and how did you get your start in lighting? My start in lighting was, uh, I took the theater route to get involved in lighting. I was actually a theater major in college and uh, I was cast in a play and I was sitting on the stage, you know, the, the week before the show opens, they do what they call the tech rehearsals, which is when the lighting designer and the set designer and the costume designer and the director are all trying to get aligned on cues and light levels. It's when everything gets real for the first time. Exactly. And as an actor, your job for those is to sit on stage in costume and and basically just be a prop so that the lighting designer can set their light levels and see how everything looks. And spending an hour or two on stage looking up at the lights, I became fascinated with that far more than the lines I was supposed to be saying. Wait a second. Hold on. You're telling me staring at lights is more fun than reciting lines? Sure. I'll tell you what, I'm going to agree with you on that one. You know, I just was looking up at all these lights and just going like, why are there so many of them? And why are they at these angles? And why do they have those color filters in them? And so I was an acting major, I guess you could say, for all of one semester. And then I kind of switched over to focusing on lighting. And that's what I did for the rest of my undergraduate was doing theatrical lighting, which of course, you know, graduating with a degree in theater didn't really set me up for for success. I I would say that's debatable. (laughs) Well, upon graduation, I went back to doing what I did through college and high school, which was to be a bicycle mechanic. Hey. Worked on bikes for, wrenched on bikes for about three years and then uh, found myself missing lighting. And so as a way to get back into lighting, but not doing the theater, I basically taught myself how to use AutoCAD, sent a bunch of resumes out all over the country. I had the LDNA directory, right? just shot a bunch of resumes out and said, hey, I know how to use AutoCAD and I know a little bit about lighting, so you should hire me. And I had one firm call me back. That turned into a job at uh, an architecture firm in New York City back in 1993. And that started it. It's 1993 and you got your first job in lighting. You mentioned you missed it a little bit. What was it you think that you loved about it so much that brought you back to it after that first stint of, as you said, turning the uh, the metal on the bikes? I mean, I guess I've always had this 
love for and understanding of, of light and lighting. You know, I've always been into photography too, ever since I was a little kid and just enjoyed seeing things and seeing how light can be used as a tool to render spaces and render scenes and, you know, just kind of understanding light's relationship to the creation of shadows and the, and the revelation of form. And yeah, I mean, you're literally painting with light you know, in terms of architectural lighting, like that became my primary interest. In the theater, that's what it's all about. In, in the theater, when you're doing particularly things like dance lighting, right, where you have light fixtures that are low to the ground and they're lighting performers at these, these very acute angles, it is so much fun. I mean, you're literally sculpting human beings and scenery with light sources. It's amazing. I mean, everybody that goes to the theater, I think, sees that. They see the opportunity to really kind of create something that it's almost like an imagination. And then you walk out of the theater when it's over and poof, reality hits you again. So you you took that passion and you transitioned it into architecture, which I think is a common thread for a lot of lighting designers, a lot of lighting enthusiasts, maybe is what we should just call them. What led you down the path that has brought you to where you're at today? Yeah, well, so as soon as I got into, you know, that first firm, I quickly found out how much I didn't know about architecture, about lighting, the construction process and all those nightmares and headaches. And I had an awesome mentor at that first job and she taught me a lot and actually got me an interview at Fisher Morantz. So 94, I got a job at Fisher Morantz. I was there for five years and I've always been a very fortunate with my timing, you know, both of those firms, my first lighting firm and then Fisher Morantz too, they were both kind of just getting into using computers in their daily life, like using CAD and... You're telling me that we used to do lighting design without computers? (laughs) Rob, I'm not that old. I can't think about that. (laughs) Yep. I am that old. I remember doing stuff on paper, but that was how I got into architectural lighting was that I played that card of, hey, I know a little bit about lighting through the theater stuff. And I know a little bit about computers and I can help you guys bring your lighting design process into the CAD age. And then that just very quickly led to this discovery of all these amazing simulation capabilities that even then were pretty amazing. I mean, you know, compared to now, of course, we would almost laugh at that, but... Why would we laugh at it? Well, because the capabilities then, both in terms of the software and the hardware that they were running on, pales in comparison to what we have today, you know? Fair enough, fair enough. Your iPhone is a little more capable than the computers that landed guys on the moon. Wow. So yeah, um, the notion that could describe a building, right? They can put the geometry and the materials, you know, how much light gets transmitted through the glass and how much gets reflected off of the walls and the floor and the ceiling. You can enter all that information in the computer. And then you can say this building, right, this virtual building is located at this specific latitude and longitude and it's oriented this way. And we know this about the weather conditions typical to that location or climate. And then we can ask the computer to say, hey, what's this going to look like? So we're effectively asking the computer to make trillions of calculations, right? Because we're asking the computer to simulate the path and the movement of trillions of photons. You know, they emanate from the sun and they were diffused through the sky dome, through the clouds and through the atmosphere. And they bounce off the ground and they go through a window and they hit a table or a wall or what have you. And they bounce around and there's all this inter-reflection that happens that all of those interactions and all of those paths add up to the scene 
that we see, that our eyes perceive in literally the blink of an eye, right? You know, when you flip a light switch on, the light bulbs emit these same photons and the same process happens. At the speed of light, they bounce around in the space and they define the scene. And the speed of light is 186 million miles per second. Correct. So it's not like this isn't anything short of instantaneous. Being able to render that in real time as a simulation, as you said, it's maybe trivial today, but that was something that was super exciting back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Before we dive into that, though, let's take a step back and let's talk about why simulating daylight is important, or maybe just what is daylight and why is daylight important? Daylight is the fundamental light source that's available to us and has been available to us as human beings since since the beginning. Electric lighting hasn't been around for very long in terms of evolution. It's an eye blink, you know. Daylight is this wonderful, tremendously powerful, highly variable light source. It's dynamic. It's spectrally robust. It's very good at rendering spaces, rendering colors accurately, all of those things. Sure, that's fine. As a matter of fact, I think it's the best. I mean, daylight's what we base everything off in terms of full spectrum light, correct? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's considered the so-called gold standard, right, for lighting and color rendition and, and things of that nature. It's got all the bits in it, you know, spectrally. It's got all the stuff in there. And those bits go beyond just our visual system. They dive into our circadian stimulus and our biological clocks. Exactly. And that's what I was getting at is in terms of, you know, we've evolved and our eyes have evolved to work with and respond to daylight since the beginning, right? You know, electric light is, it's a low-end substitute for the real thing, the real deal, daylight. Electric light is a substitute. You are getting screwed if you have electric light. (laughs) I love it. How about that electric light that you paid for? You're getting screwed. I mean, don't get me wrong. Electric light has many, many tremendous benefits to us. But even the world's most technologically sophisticated airliner could fly into a thunderstorm and be brought down by Mother Nature, right? It's the same thing here. I mean, electric light can't possibly compete with Mother Nature's light, daylight. And then when you get into all these other possibilities for daylight, such as using it as a substitute for electric lighting, so in terms of energy efficiency, right? If you daylight your building in a controlled way, you admit daylight, natural light into your spaces, you could potentially turn off your electric light sources for a good portion of the day and thus save energy. And I think when you bring that up, there's a, the devil's advocate to that is too much daylight in the space maybe brings too much heat gain in or too much glare. You know, the space by the windows isn't comfortable. I think that's all relative too. dive into that just a little bit deeper for me in terms of like what it means to really let daylight penetrate a space. Yeah, sure. So daylighting, right? So we talked a little bit about what daylight is, right? But daylighting, to my mind, is, you know, thoughtful admission of natural light into an architectural space Mm -hmm. toward the goals of lighting the space, potentially saving energy by way of turning off the electric lights, saving energy by way of, again, thoughtfully bringing in the light in such a way that you don't overheat the space. And also, as you alluded to, there's this whole, I mean, this, this whole body of knowledge is maybe 20 years old, this understanding of this additional photoreceptor in the eye 
intrinsically photoreceptive retinal ganglion cells that are, they have nothing to do with image formation, right? But they're in the eye and they send information to the brain telling us when it's daytime and when it's nighttime and more importantly, when it's sunrise and when it's sunset. And this is sending signals to our endocrine system to secrete or suppress a melatonin. I mean, this has profound impacts on human health and well-being and productivity and, uh, you know, wake sleep cycles. Again, it's this notion that Mother Nature's light source is tremendously more powerful than anything that we could cook up in a lab and screw into a socket and, and throw some electricity at. And, you know, when you mention that, it's... It's almost fascinating why not just daylight an entire building. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of reasons why you don't just daylight a building. Electric light not only serves an intent and purpose, but it can help us do certain things and maybe even achieve a a broader system in the building. I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can dive into all those people that may have input as to how that daylight does come into the space. And whether they even know that's what they're recommending or not. Sound good? Sounds good. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, The Light Pod is brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. They bring you engaging content, kind of like this podcast, or short two-minute videos. Check them out. That's L-Y-T-E-I dot com. And welcome back. Over the break, Rob and I were just catching up a little bit more about how daylight does come into every single building. And whether people know it or not, they're probably making some sort of a decision along the way, whether or not it's design or construction, or maybe just any of an owner direction as to what daylight is going to be like in that space. Rob, talk to me just a little bit more about what it means to have an impact on creating a an environment that's comfortable for people to live in when it comes to daylight. Sure. First of all, you have to consider what's the purpose of the building, right? I mean, my experience with daylighting started in museum work, bringing in daylight. Again, you can't beat mother nature, right? But you also have to respect mother nature. So bringing in daylight is certainly the best light source for illuminating art, works of art, especially when those works of art were created under only natural light. So it's best to observe them and appreciate them rendered under the same lighting conditions. But those works of art are priceless, literally priceless and sensitive. Um, some of them really sensitive, you know, we're talking about works on paper and feathers and wood and things like that. So, and daylight has the ability to destroy them, destroy them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where it started as I sort of transitioned more as I moved to Colorado and started working for a sustainable engineering firm, my focus and the need for my services in terms of daylighting design were more around sustainability. So it was, how do you bring in the light? And it was largely office buildings, airport terminals, things of that nature. And it was, how do you bring in the natural light to help people do those kinds of jobs, but again, without being detrimental to the performance thereof. So in the case of an office, you want to bring in enough light so that people can potentially do their work without the need for supplemental electric lighting, or at least a reduced load. But at the same time, you mentioned it, you don't want to bake these people. You don't want to overheat them. And you certainly don't want to introduce so much light, so much direct sun that you have the G word, you know, glare is 
first of all, highly subjective, extremely difficult to control for, and can be absolutely detrimental to the daylighting design of a building. And when you look at the daylighting design of a building, I'm sure there's daylighting consultants out there that are obviously going to make an impact on that. Who else is involved in the design process that can kind of shape how the daylight ends up coming into a building? Hopefully everyone. Everyone seems to have an opinion about how it should be done or what should be done or what shouldn't be done. But yeah, whether they realize it or not, everybody from the architect, the owner, the GC, down to the occupants or up to the occupants, all have a say or should have a say in what goes down in terms of the daylighting design. And it's hard to obviously take every opinion of every single one of those people and put it into a single box and press go and enter. So you mentioned simulation earlier. How does simulation kind of tie into taking these needs and ideas and thoughts and modeling it all together to, I'm guessing, come up with the right solution? Yeah. I mean, I would argue that it's absolutely essential. To me, it's amazing and it's fascinating and it's extremely powerful. And I wish it were used more. I mean, first of all, you can use simulation to quantify the amount of daylight that you're going to get in your space. And remember, we talked about the notion that daylight is an extremely variable and dynamic and potentially an intense source of light. And yet we can simulate that, right? We have historical weather files. So we know on a sort of a 30-year average basis how cloudy or clear a particular site is and how often it rains or, or it doesn't rain. And obviously we know where and when the sun is going to rise and set throughout the year. And through simulation, we can actually predict with a pretty good certainty how much light is going to impinge on the work surfaces in an office, for example, or on the eyes and on the faces of people sitting in an airport terminal trying to read their phone and make their connection. It's incredible and it's evolving and it's getting better all the time and, and metrics are evolving, right? The IES has codified a metric, LM83, which is an attempt to say this is a well daylit building or not, or it's sufficiently daylit, right? And it takes into account all those things we just talked about, like the quantity of the daylight, the potential for glare or not, the presence or absence of shading or the ability to shade and, you know, again, control the light on those most extreme days or those most extreme conditions. And so that's a tool that is largely the purview of a few, a select few individuals in the world. Tools like Autodesk, Revit, in AutoCAD even, they can claim that they do daylight simulation. They can say that they do a physically based simulation. So when you talk about simulation and those other products, take a deep dive into it for me. Like, What does it really mean to have a daylight simulation tool? Is it a thousand variables that you're plugging in as opposed to three or is it endless? See, that's the problem, right? I would say that the true virtuosos of daylighting simulation are playing with a thousand. Unfortunately, you have a lot of people that are sitting at a desk with a Revit license and there's a menu and there's a simulation section of this menu that says, yeah, here, do you want to do a daylight simulation? Plug in your lat long, time of day, hit the go button. There it is. There's your daylighting. And that's obviously, that's going to spit out some accurate information. It's going to say at this time of day, based on a certain sky condition, here's what daylight looks like coming into the space. But maybe it's more about what do you do with that information? Talk to me just a little bit more about how when we're not necessarily informed about 
what impacts daylight has on our space, how that can lead to things that maybe aren't so good. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like even this metric, this IES metric, I think is somewhat flawed. It's just such a difficult thing to nail down to say, what is good daylighting or what is enough daylighting or what is... I mean, what what is good design? What is... Uh, yeah. What is a good car? What is a good gas station? What is a good anything? It's always hard to quantify that sort of stuff. But why is this all important? You know, daylighting, as you mentioned, it's the superior source. It has a dramatic effect on, you know, who we are as human beings and how we've evolved. It impacts our health. Daylighting simulation and all those finite details really do need to be captured to create an opportunity to say, hey, if we're going to build a building for people, we need to take this seriously. You know, what happens when people don't? Well, what happens is the so-called daylighting design features are overridden, whether that's the sensors that were supposed to turn off the electric lights are taped over because, you know, one person out of 100 felt that there wasn't enough light from daylight alone. So they taped over the sensor so that the electric lights were effectively on all the time. You see, you know, pieces of cardboard taped onto the windows for so-called glare control. You know, the daylighting design, in effect, is it's not just the purview of the daylighting designer. I mean, first of all, most projects don't have the benefit of a daylighting design, a dedicated individual to guide the daylighting design. And that's unfortunate because the daylighting design itself is not, it's not an element. It's not a single line item in a budget. It's not one thing that you can do or not do or value engineer out, which happens all the time. Wait a second. How do you value engineer all the natural light out of the building? So, I mean, when I was working at the sustainable engineering firm in Boulder, all too often when I went into a, a value engineering meeting, I basically knew what the end game was. As the daylighting designer, I was more often than not at the kids' table, right, for all these conversations. We were never taken seriously because we were just seen as this extra expense. And it was never really understood that. The daylighting design is the end result of so many decisions and so many products, actually, right? I mean, it's not just... It's not just the windows. It's not just yeah. the light shelves. It's not just the electric light being controlled against the daylight coming into the space. I mean, it's the location of the building. It's the orientation of the thing. It's the shape of the friggin' thing, right? Like if you don't make it long and skinny east to west and have lots of south exposure that's easy to control... Now that's for the northern hemisphere. For the Northern Hemisphere, correct. Then you're screwed from the outset. And actually, the long and skinny east and west works in both hemispheres. It's just which aperture are you using for your primary daylight source? It's south in the North Hemisphere. It's north in the Southern Hemisphere. Absolutely. When you mentioned, you know, there's all these things that can affect it from the shape to the form and the function of the building, what it looks like, where it's at. Where does that daylight consultant that has often been at the kids' table really belong yeah, they belong at the grown-ups table from the outset, right? I mean, building massing and siting and form, those are decisions that are made very early on. When I moved to Colorado from New York, all the projects that I got on, first of all, I would show up at 100% design documents. The first peak of the design that I get is the project is at 50 or 100% DD. The building's shape is already Basically decided. Basically means that things coming out of the ground tomorrow. Yeah. So like, what can I do? You know, what can you do at that point? 
Well, at that point, the best you can hope for is some thoughtful discussion around defenestration. Maybe you can get some better glass, higher performing, you know, IGUs, maybe better light to heat ratios. You can help them out with shading, you know, hopefully it's fixed shading on the outside of the building at that point. You can also guide the interior design discussion because that's actually part of the daylighting design. Where are the people? Where are they sitting and how are they oriented with respect to the windows and the sun? On the project that I worked on at NREL, the research support facility, the placement of the desk was a fundamental piece of the daylighting design. What they elected to do was to move the desks about seven feet from the south wall to make that area a circulation corridor rather than putting people right against the window. Because if you put people right at the window, you need to consider the worst or at least close to the worst case scenario in terms of shading and control. So if you control for the person that's sitting right at the window, you've basically blown your daylighting opportunity. You're not going to get good penetration deeper into the space. That's the game. Again, it's thoughtful introduction of the maximum amount of daylight into a space so that we can offset the electric lighting, but you can also distribute light to the most amount of people that are in the space. And by extension, they then have a view to the outside and that connection to the outdoors. That whole like ancillary piece of daylighting that's only now starting to really be appreciated with respect to the health benefits. And that's that biophilic sense of, of having a view of the outdoors or feeling like you're connected to the exterior. We've talked about a lot here in, in a short amount of time. And the conversation I know could go on and on and on. But I've got to ask, uh, you know, just kind of as a final thought, what do you see that you can do today in terms of product, in terms of simulation, in terms of, you know, the manufacturing company that you're working with today? What are you guys doing to help foster this process to become better known, better educated, respected and everything else? Yeah, thanks for that question. I feel... Truly, truly lucky to be working at a company like VIEW, where we produce a dynamic glass product, I guess is the simplest term, right? It's an electrochromic IGU, which basically means it's a window that can tint. Instead of one window, it can be four different windows in terms of transmittance. It's always clear. It always maintains that connection to the outdoors, even when it's tinted in its most aggressive state, which is primarily for glare control, right? We can throttle the transmission of the glass all the way down to a half a percent, which actually allows somebody to sit behind that glass with a view to direct sun and actually still be comfortable, not hot, not having discomfort glare, disabling glare, actually able to do their work. But then the glass is controlled in such a way that it's only in those dark states when necessary. And it's in a clear state more often than not, to maximize the daylight ingress. But again, the glass is always clear. There's never a shade that's drawn. We maximize the view to the outside, the admission of daylight. It's just been amazing because I've only been with VIEW for a little over a year now. And prior to that, I, was, I spent 10 years at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory doing lighting research and software tool development around daylighting simulation tools and trying to make daylighting simulation available to more people and to more design teams. Because when you have that simulation... There's an opportunity to even explore, uh, you know, what you can do with something like view or shades or light louvers or shelves or anything else. Absolutely. I just feel like this move to manufacturing or to industry has been a really, really exciting next step in my career and one that I never even envisioned until it was in front of me, which was amazing. And now that I'm there, I'm involved in, surprise, more research. VIEW is committed to the notion of daylight as an improver of human health and well-being in interior spaces. We have commissioned research projects around it. 
it's not just about selling windows. We are really trying to quantify that value of views and natural light and daylighting to the building industry because it's the next frontier in terms of architectural design, lighting design, health and wellness. It crosses a lot of different disciplines. And we were talking before about the notion of daylighting being value engineered out as a single line item in a budget. We need to get past that conversation. Daylight is so much more than a line item. As you mentioned, daylighting is the building, it's the space, it's the experience. It's really kind of what brings it all together. And if it weren't for electric light, we'd be relying on it 100% of the time. Yep. Rob, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. I know there's more to be talked about here. If anybody listening has any questions, what's the best way that they can get in touch with you? I'm out there, you know, I'm on all the things, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, you know. Hit Rob up on uh, LinkedIn. Rob, by the way, you got to spell your last name for me. Yeah. Okay. G-U-G-L-I-E-L-M-E-T-T-I. That's right. Rob Guglielmetti. Guglielmetti. Yeah, you're, you're getting there. I'm getting there. You know, I'm not Italian, but I've tried my best. Rob, thanks again so much. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Appreciate it.
Hey, it's Sam. Real quick, if you enjoyed this podcast, do me a favor. Head on back to that app that you listen to this on and click that like, follow, or subscribe button. That's the best way to never miss another episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people, all things lighting, building daylight, and really just people who are exciting and fun to talk to about what's going on in our industry today. Until next time, see ya.